The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Welcome to The Echo Chamber. This is Arthi Shah. I'm an editor with The Homes Report. So today's show brings on two guests to talk about, well, to really to give a new take on some age-old PR realities. The first is the RFP process, which I know all of the listeners out there have been involved in at some point, whether um, on either side of the process. And the second is the very broad and all-encompassing world of thought leadership campaigns. So first, we'll have Gabrielle Teneglia from Globality join the show. So for those of you that are not familiar, Globality is a technology platform that helps to match small to mid-sized agencies with brands looking to do looking to do campaigns. Last year, Globality closed about 26 million in funding, and it's the former, or it's the brainchild of the former current TV CEO Joel Hyatt, and it has a lot of sort of high-profile investors, including including Al Gore. Um, so they they do um, this sort of matchmaking across several sectors, but of course Gabrielle leads the marketing services division. So after we have a conversation with her, then we'll bring on Meredith Eaton of March Communications, and she will talk about thought leadership and answer questions like, which brands are doing it really well? Is it overdone? What does it even mean today? Um, so that 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 should. That'll be an interesting conversation. But first, let's start things off with globality. Welcome to the show, Gabrielle. Thank you. So we're going to talk a little bit about globality in a moment, but the way that I understand the the platform is it, it attempts to solve or take some of the pain out of sort of the RFP process between professional services and the clients that they that they look to serve. Is that Correct. Yes. The goal is to make it easier for big global companies to find small and medium-sized agencies. And this is across professional services. It's not just marketing and PR. That's right. Across all kinds of professional services. The company has launched with marketing services, legal services, and energy, environment, and sustainability consulting. But we intend to add more services as our clients have the need. So... So, so let's talk. So I'll tell you quickly first about some of the pain points that we hear around the traditional RFP process, um, primarily from the agency side, and that's of course the 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 um, cattle call, which everybody um, dreads, where there's you know 15 agencies in round one all brought in, and everyone in town's invited, um, and, and agencies really have a hard time figuring out what kind of chance they stand, why they were invited, if there's anything unique that they bring to the table. Um, and then, so that's one thing. And then, of course, procurement. Um, I think it's been kind of the bane of a lot of agencies' existence. And, and you know, and sometimes, from what we hear, agencies feel like they're called into an art to, to a review process when um, the client plans on sticking with their existing agency, but they're just going through the motions. And um, and, and sometimes it's procurement driven. Um, sometimes it's just a you know wake the existing agency up. It just depends. But, um, but so that's another sort of pain point. And, and then, of course, the, the, the third thing that we hear a lot is resources, right? I mean, um, often, you know, agencies usually have to take people off of existing clients to put them on new business pitches. Oftentimes, they put in a lot of good ideas um, that, that they think should be paid for um, in, in, these, in these pitches um, only to, you know, and so if you, you lose, you don't obviously get that time back. So, so those are the kind of the, the things that we hear on our end, and I'm just curious in terms of when you all um, were thinking about putting globality together, what were the sort of the pain points that you were hearing about, both from the brand and agency side? Yeah, th- those are all um, good points, and let me see if I can address them in 
in telling you about globality. I think, you know, the, the reason that we put this system together was the starting point was really about helping big companies find smaller and medium-sized agencies. Our purpose is to help those small and medium-sized agencies get more access to opportunities from big companies. I think one of the biggest challenges that they have is they just don't get exposure to some of those kinds of opportunities. And then when they do, they have all the problems that you've talked about. Procurement gets involved, there's a long, painful process. Um, and what we are trying to do is take what's really a broken, antiquated, an very analog process done often by hand and by paper and very labor intensive and make it digital, make it more efficient and use artificial intelligence to help support that process all along the way. I think from the beginning, what our process does is it helps make smarter matches. We don't match you with 10 agencies because we are going to match you with the three, four, five best agencies for the business challenge you have, for the culture that your company has, and we're going to help you find a successful, a smaller set of agencies that can successfully execute your project or, or work on your business. Um, and then we also have a process that is really um, is really focused around helping. Clients get to a decision faster. We don't encourage big creative pitches, spec work pitches, long drawn out processes. Um, we're really using the platform and the technology to encourage some very fast communication, fast connection between the agencies and the client and a much more streamlined decision making process. Um, you mentioned procurement. Procurement does get involved, um, but what we have found in almost 100% of cases, procurement is really excited about this platform that we've created and the opportunity to make better decisions faster. Um, we, Because we vet agencies before they come onto the platform, we look at not only their creative and their, their um, ability to execute on projects and do a great job there, but we also do a whole um, financial and reputational vetting process. So we look at your financial history, we look at um, any legal problems that you might have had. So procurement is able to take that whole exercise off their plates, so it makes the process much faster and much more streamlined for them as well. So you touched on something that I hear oftentimes when um when agencies win new business, and that's culture and chemistry. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes when I talk to the brand side, they'll say, well, you know, everybody had great ideas, but we felt like the culture and chemistry was best with, you know, the agency that ended up being the victor. So I'm curious how you all, so, so, when, you, so when you narrow it down, say, five to five agencies when, when a brand's looking for, for a partner, um, how, do you, how, do you, how do you take that into account? Because that's so subjective. There's a couple of different ways. We have a team of people who, who work with me uh, under marketing services who all have experience on the agency side and client side. And the first thing that we do is we get to know the agencies in the process. We pick up the phone, we talk to them, we look at their work. So there's always a level of human curation involved in the process. And we get to know the clients and we, having been in on both sides of those relationships before, we have a sense of the culture and chemistry and can help navigate that in the matching process. But we also have something that's called Globality Spark. And it's a survey that we've built after having done a lot of research with both clients and agencies that covers a lot of the culture and relationship kind of questions that agencies get involved in when they are pitching. Um, we ask both clients and agencies what their tolerance for risk is. We ask how often you like to communicate. 
we ask about you know work style and um, you know are you a more hierarchical kind of culture or are you a flat kind of culture in your organization and what we're doing right now is we're taking a look at that data as we match um, and what we're hoping to do once we have we'll have hundreds of matches where we've used this data where you can look at the data and we'll be able to understand what kinds of clients and what kinds of agencies from a culture and work style perspective fit well together, which is a really exciting opportunity for us. Yeah, no, that's actually really interesting to kind of do a survey like that around culture. And it's probably more effective for someone like Globality to do that than having an individual client because I can see agencies might answer what they think that client might want versus with, with you all, it's somewhat from a neutral perspective. Um, so you mentioned that your your typical process for um, for matching an agency and and some and a brand is faster than than those sort of drawn out you know lots of spec work um, RFP. So can you walk me through a little bit in terms of what that process looks like from yes. start to finish? Yes, it starts with the clients coming to the platform and um, and writing a brief. We have a set of questions, they're dynamically generated. Um, if you go in and say that you have a PR assignment, the platform is gonna serve up different questions for you than if you have an advertising assignment or a research assignment. Um, as the platform generates those questions, it's starting to understand the kind of assignment you have and what your needs are gonna look like. Um, as a client, you fill out a bunch of criteria, you know, what your objectives are for this program, some things that are going to be critical in your decision-making process with an agency. And then once a client has done that, the, you know, we've got um, a system and algorithms and lots of technology that will then serve up a set of agencies to my team. My team will then go in and take a look at the brief and take a look at the agencies and do a little bit of work understanding, you know, here's what these agencies' work looks like, here's what the system recommends as matches, but here's what my opinion is as well, having had the experience of 10 or 15 or 20 years working in this industry. And then we'll put together a set of three to five matches for the client. We then um, share a little bit of information about the client's project with the agencies often not the brand name, but you know the industry, the type of project, the timeline, um, sometimes some budget information, and we allow the agencies a chance to say yes or no whether or not they're interested before their name ever gets shown to the client. So if for any reason at all, your agency just doesn't have the capacity to take something on, you have competitors in that space, um, you're allowed to say no before, before your name gets exposed to the client. And then the agencies that are interested, we show, we show their names to the client. The client can take a look, decide who they want to have participate in their RFP or pitch process, send them the NDA and the brief. And that typically happens within five days of a client writing the brief. Um, so then after that, there's a process of the agencies going through the client's request, answering the questions, filling out a, building a proposal, filling out the proposal section on our platform. And that's a place where there's a little bit more flexibility for the client to create a pitch timeline that works for them. Typically, the clients are gonna to wanna to do some of the things that they do today in a pitch process. They wanna to talk to the agencies. They wanna, we have a video chat function built into the platform. They wanna see who you are and see if there's a chemistry um, there. We have one client who's working right now who's, uh, the agencies we recommended are local, um, local-ish, I'll say, to, to their location. So they're gonna have the agencies come in and meet them. 
Um, so that back end of the process can vary, but overall the process is designed to take, you know, I would say four to six weeks instead of a pitch process that as you know, can go on for months and months oh, and months yeah. with initial RFIs mm -hmm. and creds meetings and tissue sessions and subsequent meetings and contract negotiations. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been in processes that take four to six months. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And sometimes at the end of that, um, the client realizes they don't, A, either have the, the, the budget that they initially thought or budget runs out and they have to put the project on hold. Yes. And so you all have a fail-safe against that, correct? We have a process where we are confirming that the clients have budgets available mm -hmm. when, they put, um, when they put projects onto the platform. So I think at the end of the day, you can't prevent that entirely. If you know, a budget is there and then it goes away, um, there's nothing that, that we can do about that. But we are confirming, you know, just like we do financial vetting for the for the agencies, we do some vetting for the clients, and we confirm that these are organizations that are committed to spending. Sometimes they have commitments with us to put a series of projects on the platform for a large dollar value so that we know that they have that money available to spend. Because one of the things that I had read, and maybe and maybe this was not correct, was that but when when it, when the when the brand comes to you with, with a project, that the money, the funds are put in escrow? So when, when brands come to us with a project, once the project has been awarded to an agency, they have to put 25% of the fee into escrow with us. And that does a couple of things for us. Number one, it guarantees that the agency is going to get paid and get paid on time. Um, that if for some reason, like you're saying, the project disappears or budgets get cut, that there is some money set aside for the agency to get paid for their time spent to date. So you mentioned that you all provide some budget information to the agencies that are that are that are shortlisted on your end um, before they they commit to, to the pitch, and I, I mean I would think that would be the biggest obstacle in terms of whether an agency feels like they can take on the work. Um, is there is there a minimum budget that they can expect at least? Right now, we have a minimum project fee of $100,000. So we're not interested, you know, project fees of $30,000, dollars $50,000 are more freelance-sized projects in our world. Um, and they're, they're not typically profitable for an agency of 20 or 30 people. You know, our sort of sweet spot in agency size is between 30 and 60 people. And those are tough projects to do for an agency that size and do profitably. Um, <clears throat> so we have a minimum size of $100,000. That does get waived for some clients who are, like I mentioned, committing to put much bigger spends on our platform. And so what we're able to do then is feed, uh, feed a number of smaller projects to agencies so that they can, you know, the idea being that they can make that $100,000 fee or more oftentimes much more than that over a series of projects. So we're not, we are not looking to ask agencies to do a one-off $30,000 project. So what about Globality's role after the business is awarded? Do you all play any role in the client-agency relationship? Right now, we are, we are looking at what we're calling sort of a agency and client optimization process. There's a series of points in the process where we will ask clients and agencies for feedback. We're trying to encourage clients and agencies to communicate and to build real relationships. 
and um, and so we're we're going to be looking for places where it looks like that's not happening from what we're learning in these questions, but we're also going to have a lot of behavioral data. We'll be able to see how much the clients and agencies are communicating at least on our platform and how they're working together. So we might be able to look at a relationship that's happening and go to a client or go to an agency and say, we have all this behavioral data that suggests that the most successful client and agency relationships show communication seven times a week and you're only communicating with your client three times a week. Is there something that you could change about that? You know, it, might it be better to communicate more often? We, can, we will be in a position to um, offer up suggestions like that because we'll have lots of data about how relationships are working and which ones are successful and, and which ones aren't. And, and that changes so much based on the client, right? I mean, I've talked to some clients, some of the some of the larger brands, and, and they do want yes. more formalized communication yep. frequently. But then I'll talk to startups, and they'll say, no, 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 we don't have time for that. They're like, just send us a bullet in email. Like, that's it. We don't want anything more. We don't want to do weekly hour-long calls. Yep. So how do you sort of adjust for kind of the client's needs in that? Well, if the client's happy and they only want to talk once a week, then the agency should be getting good feedback. So... You know, if you, I think you always have to combine the feedback with the behavioral data. The behavioral data, to your point, is there will be some averages and some standards, but every client is different, has different needs. And so if the client and the agency are only talking once a week, but the client's very happy with that, then that should be fine. What about, um, do you have any data now on sort of the success rate? Um, when you say success rate, do you mean... Well, in terms of, so when, when you've paired the, the agency and the brand, that they've been, that the outcome's been, been yep. good for both sides and they've been happy with the we results. Ha we, um, we have a number of projects that are in a beta or pilot phase. Um, we are not yet able to talk about the results of those, partly because many of them are still in progress. Um, so I think if you come back to me in a year or even in six months and ask me that question, I'll, I'll have a better answer. Yeah, and, that would be, and, and in terms of agency and brand interest, and maybe we can address those separately, what kind of interest are you getting? Let's talk more first about agencies. What kind of interest are you getting from the agency world? I think, um, you know, and part of the role of my team is to go out and create a network of agencies for us. To, to use to match with clients. And, and so we do this every day, and we're talking to agencies of all kinds around the world every day. And the reception is more often than not a good one. People are interested in this idea. They want to learn more. I think there's, there's probably no agency out there who sort of sits back and says, I've got enough new business. I'm good. I'm not interested in learning how to get more new business. Sure. You know? um, so, so we have a great door opener. Lots of folks want to talk to us. Um, I think there are some agencies that that balk a little bit about the process or the, the fees at the end. I, I think one misconception that agencies have is that our intent is to make this process all digital. I think um, you know we encourage agencies and clients to form relationships during this process, that relationships are important to having a successful client and agency engagement. And so... Uh, we don't want to do anything to get in the way of that, and we, we talk about that quite often with, with agencies. And so in that fee, it's about it's 15% of the overall project fee? It's 15% of the agency fee. So if there are production costs or there are hard costs involved, we don't charge a 15, the 15% on that part of the fee, only on the sort of time of staff agency fees piece. 
And what um, are the other questions I have is, you know, where where agencies sort of find sort of the sweets, or, 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 or actually, well, before we go there, actually, let's let's tackle this, the other part of the, the question I just asked. What kind of reception are you getting from brands? Brands are incredibly excited about this. Um, I think for a couple of reasons. The first one is that I think a, there are a lot of brands out there who have felt a little bit um, stuck I'll say, in their agency relationships because it's hard to go out and find new agencies. Not only is it hard to go out and find new agencies, but the process of getting, if, if they want to go out and, for example, replace one big agency with five or six smaller ones, the process of getting all of those agencies vetted and onboarded through procurement today is very, very difficult. You mentioned procurement earlier. It's difficult for agencies, but it's difficult for clients as well. And what we enable them to do is have one procurement relationship through us, through which they can hire as many agencies as they want. So they don't have to do the individual vetting and onboarding of those smaller agencies, which can sometimes take up to a year. Um, at really big companies, the process is extensive. So they're, they're incredibly excited about how this opens up the ability for them to try new things, to try working with new agencies, to bring new partners on board, um, even if it's for an, an experiment, you know, we just we want to try something new that's outside the purview of our AOR, and now there's a way for us to do it. And so you'd mentioned, um, so I wanted to go back for a second to um, the comment about agencies thinking that maybe you all are trying to digitize the whole process. So once once the, the two are, are connected, or even during the pitch process, does the agency have direct contact with the brand, or is it through a platform where you all sort of mediate? The agency has direct contact with the brand. As soon as, um, as, soon as the agency has decided, I'm sorry, as soon as the client has decided and confirmed that those agencies are the ones they want to invite into the process, they sign an NDA, the client requires it, the client sends them the brief, and then we encourage the clients and agencies to interact. Um, and they do it on the platform. We have sort of a workspace. It's a like a chat space, like works just like Slack or Facebook Messenger or any other kind of messaging service. Um, agencies and clients collaborate there. There's a video chat feature that we've had agencies and clients use. And then also, um, you know, we certainly encourage agencies and clients to pick up the phone and talk to each other or meet in person if that, if it makes sense for the geography and size of the project. So do they... Can they move off of the Globality um, platform? Can they can can they use Slack? Can they use traditional email? They can. They absolutely can. What we are we are um, we're seeing both happen. We're seeing clients work both on the platform and off the platform. We've had some feedback from clients and agencies who have multiple projects happening at one time that they actually like how the platform enables. Um, enables them to manage communication for a bunch of different and very diverse things all in one place. So let's talk a little bit about sort of the sweet spot. And the most obvious to me seems like um, it would be geographical coverage. So if you're a brand and you're going into a new market and you don't have an agency relationship there or your existing AOR doesn't service that market, that you would use something like this um, to sort of find a local partner. Um, is that primarily where you're seeing the interest or, um, or are there other areas? There's definitely other areas. Geography, as you mentioned, is, is kind of an obvious place. Um, 
it feels like there's a lot of places right now where clients feel like they have gaps in their current agency coverage. So a client might come to us and say, we have an AOR, but our AOR has these strengths, and then there's these other areas where they're less strong. So they're looking um, for coverage in some of the specialty areas. It might be a digital project, it might be a social project, it might be a strategy or research piece. Um, there's, there's some other conversations where we've had where the clients have said there's just a lot of spillover from the AOR. The AOR can't handle everything. And so we've, we've always got some bucket of things that need to be done from that spillover. I think there's also, um, we've also seen clients come in with very specialized kind of requests where they don't even know how to go about starting to find the agency. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of very senior clients today who, for example, maybe don't have a ton of experience with digital or with marketing automation projects. And they're saying, you know what, I don't, we're not sure who's best at this, so maybe you can help us figure it out. So do you, do, how often do you get brands looking for an actual AOR through the platform? Um, right now, we don't have any. I think brands are trying this more with more um, project-based work. However, what we're getting are brands who are saying, I have this project I'm going to put on as a starting point, but my goal is to find an agency who I can work with over the next year or 18 months to execute an entire program. So if this first project goes well, then you know there is a longer-term relationship there. And we're hearing that a lot. There's, it's not... It's definitely not just a series of one-off projects that, that companies are looking to um, engage in. And so from a geographical perspective, it's, is it just, I mean, do you find that the bulk is like agencies looking for um, partners in emerging markets, or is it, is it everywhere? It's everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, so a little bit about um, the role that, that we, we already touched on this. Um, is there anything else about the role that procurement plays that we haven't talked about in this process? Um, I think, you know, the one thing I'll say is procurement is excited about this because it enables them to be more efficient and more strategic. They can spend less of their time sort of ticking boxes and fact-checking and more of their time thinking about bigger questions about, you know, should we be sourcing these things from these, these strategic functions from outside agencies or should we be bringing them in-house and, and evaluating bigger picture questions like that? instead of just doing the very functional kind of box checking work. How often do you have to say no to an agency because they don't meet your standards to be on the platform? It happens. I don't have the exact number in my head. It happens some very small percentage of the time. It's probably single digits somewhere mm -hmm. where an agency um, isn't meeting the financial considerations. Um, sometimes we do have a, a bunch of people um, come who are more freelancers and we have to tell them, you know, this is really for actual agencies. We have projects, a project, a minimum project size that really puts it in the realm of an agency versus a freelancer. Um, I think that's the, the reason that we most often say no. Sometimes there are agencies whose clients list and whose work or whose previous experience, they're, they're just not quite there yet from the terms of our quality standards for an agency. Um, but mostly, it, mostly it, it happens for, we'll say no for financial reasons. Either the, the company is just one person or two people or they just don't have a good enough financial history 
to enable us to put them on the platform. And, and in those cases, we always invite agencies to come back. When you win a new piece of business, if you turn things around, um, you're welcome to come back and we'd love to talk to you then. What about um, the cap? So there's a 500-person cap on the agencies that can be on the network. Why, why cap it out? I mean, there's Because it basically takes out all of the, the sort of really big players. Yes, and the intent is to take out the really big players. We, our purpose, our goal is to really bring small and medium-sized independent agencies more into the global economy. Um, the big players have the resources and the connections to be part of the global economy. We're not, we're not here supporting you know, that cause. Um, so what about, um, so you all recently closed a pretty big funding round. So, so when you all, so when that happens, I mean, so what are you hearing? Like what's, why, why is there so much interest? I mean, of course we, we've just spent the last like 20 minutes talking about all of that, but I mean, is there anything in particular when, you know, when, say when the funding round closed and people said, wow, this is what we really need because X. I mean, I, I think the thing that we hear all the time and the reason that investors are interested in this company is because big global businesses are looking for a more modern, more efficient way to hire services. And um, the reception we're getting from those companies is very strong. And um, and on the, on the services side, agencies are really interest, interested in this model and they want to participate and they want to participate in the global economy. And, you know, do projects with global companies. So I'm curious what, how, so if you look at Globality's pie, like how big is the marketing services slice? Because I know you all do legal services, accounting, you know, all yep. kinds of professional services. Yep. Um, I would say that, if I can, that we are first among equals right now. I think it's a little bit easier for companies to chunk off a marketing project and a little bit easier to experiment in the marketing space than it might be in the legal or environmental consulting space. All the all the services are busy, but I think um, ours just has a little bit more momentum behind it at the moment. Thank you for coming on the show, Gabrielle, and helping us better understand globality. So now we're going to shift our focus a little bit from new business to sort of a refresh on the age-old PR tactic of thought leadership. And coming on the show now to chat with me about this is Meredith Eaton, who is VP at March Communications, which is a boutique PR firm based in Boston. Welcome to the show, Meredith. I would like to start um, by just kind of sharing a quote that I'm sure you've already heard from Shal Israel on thought leadership. And I just thought this sort of kind of gave a good um, kind of foundation for our, for our listeners. And it's, um, a thought leader is someone who looks at the future and sets a course for it that others will follow. Thought leaders look at existing best practices and come up with better practices. They ferment change, often causing great disruption. Um, is, that, is that sort of how you would define thought leadership, Meredith, or, or would, you, would you kind of give your own take on that? Yeah, I've definitely heard uh, Shell say that before. <laughs> and I think that sets a, a great baseline. Um, I think he nails it with the looking at best practices and coming up with better practices, because to me, it's really about reimagining the status quo. Um, and to become a true thought leader, though, it's not only about that. It's not only about having the great idea. It's about um, inspiring and inspiring a following. So it's, it's the 
imagining the better practice, but then also getting others to jump on board. So just maybe taking a a more macro look for a moment. I mean, do you think that as a whole, the peer industry has lived up to that definition um, when producing thought leadership? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And do you mean in terms of its own practices or producing it um, like on behalf of clients? On, on behalf of clients, meaning that has, you know, when when the PR industry says, oh, I'm, you know, we're doing a thought leadership campaign. Um, uh-huh. Do you think PR, do you think that leadership campaigns have largely lived up to that definition? Yeah, I think it, it's, it's difficult to kind of set parameters around a campaign per se when it comes to thought leadership because it's such an ongoing and regular thing that um, I think PR support is absolutely vital to a thought leadership campaign and it can and it's absolutely lived up to it in terms of aiding in um, content production as well as opportunities to really expand on thought leaders platforms so aiding in um, kind of event presence and speaking opportunities or submitting for award nominations, you know, or even in terms of digital uh, thought leadership, aiding clients with video production or social media and just getting their thoughts and ideas and better practices um, out there to the masses. So, but I think it's important to remember that a thought leadership campaign, while it can definitely be a concerted effort over a given time period, real thought leadership is ongoing and everlasting if you really want to set a new course and get people to follow it. So we've now sort of given a, an, you know, a definition of thought leadership, but I think it would be great to illustrate that with some examples. So I'd love to hear, Meredith, kind of what, what you think are sort of some, some best practices or some great examples of thought leadership. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. There are so many, um, to choose from these days and I think it's only going to keep increasing, um, in the number of examples we can choose from just because we're seeing thought leadership and disruption at the forefront of so many different industries. Uh, you can pretty much pick one and find a thought leader there that's changing the status quo. I mean, you look at, um, Elon Musk, for example, and an easy one to go to. I mean, mm-hmm. with his his work for Tesla um, and ultimate goal to reduce global warming and just create that more sustainable energy production and also consumption. You know, that's he's really at the forefront there. But you know, that's the definite well known one. Um, I think also well known is his work to um, through his SpaceX company to colonize Mars and, you know, that's really forward thinking about reducing the risk of human extinction. That is just, um, he has well-known ideas that are really, um, diverging from what we know today. And he has a following, he has the platforms, he has the regular exposure, um, and he has the credibility. So I think that's uh, an example that many have, have likely already heard of or, or experienced in some fashion. Um, you know, it's, it's easy to name some of those big guys like Elon Musk or even, um, you know, Sheryl Sandberg at Facebook for her lean in concept and, or even Marissa Meyer at Yahoo taking risks on all the startup acquisitions, the likes of Flickr and Tumblr, or even, um, let's see, Aaron Levy comes to mind. He's the CEO of Box because he's really great about framing his thoughts around current events and getting a lot of exposure, um, when new, new news hits hits the media. 
Um, I think you can find thought leaders, though, like I said, wherever you look. You know, one that also comes to mind that might not be top of mind for others could could even be you know Pope Francis. You know, he's really diverging from some of the norms, softening the Catholic Church's position on things from contraception to sexuality. I mean, that is is diverging and looking at better practices and looking at, um, you know, and he has the credibility and the following, obviously, but he also has, um, you know, a bit of controversy. You know, it's, you're never going to be a true thought leader if you don't create some enemies along the way, right? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you named a, a lot of people and a question I had, because I've seen this, there's been some debate about whether only people could be thought leaders and not companies. And I've seen... Um, I've seen the argument that in this era of sort of mass disruption, that companies are essentially taking thought leadership positions. If you think about Airbnb, if you think about Uber, um, even Apple, from, especially from a design perspective, um, uh-huh. even GE. So I, I wanted to get your thoughts in terms of whether you think companies themselves can be thought leaders or whether that's reserved just for individuals. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and I, I've debated, debated this myself as well. And you know, a lot of the examples you mentioned of companies um, also have really stellar individual thought leaders at their helm. I mean, you take Apple and, you know, you immediately associate Steve Jobs or um, you take Microsoft and you immediately associate Bill Gates. But regardless of that, I actually do believe that companies can be thought leaders. Um, you know, they, they can fit the definition. They're pushing the envelope. They're imagining and creating new ways of doing things and actually inspiring new ways forward that have a substantial following. Um, while that may be a result of the imaginative workforce that they employ, I think the key thing to a company thought leadership platform is the collaboration that's within. You know, it's not just the one person um, moving this forward. It is their entire workforce brainstorming and coming together to make ideas into practices and continually improving upon those. Mm-hmm. So, so, I mean, on, on that note, I mean, it, it, it I wonder um, if there is a risk. So if you have individuals um, as your thought leaders, I mean, people, people leave and, um, and they take that thinking and that, and they're following with them oftentimes, um, is uh-huh. how do you mitigate that risk when you when you have individuals as thought leaders instead of sort of having that baked into the mission of the company? Yeah, I think that that's a really good point and good question. Um, you know, the value that the companies have employing the thought leader is obviously all the clout and exposure and credibility that that individual brings to the company. But when that individual leaves, hopefully, what's left behind is still the innovation that the company is spearheading. Um, so that can still continue to move forward. I mean, you take, um, an obvious example like Apple, where when Steve Jobs passed away, you know, Tim Cook was ready at the helm to take over that innovation. And I know it's, it's different with someone passing versus moving on to take their ideas forward and potentially in even a competitive environment, but hopefully that just continues to foster this marketplace of, innovation and ideas and the bettering of processes. Let's talk for a moment about brands that engage in thought leadership beyond sort of their their core competency and ones that have taken a stand on a social issue or have embedded social purpose into 
their corporate values. Do you have an example of a brand that's done that very well? One brand that I really admire um, who rolled out something with regard to hunger and poverty was Panera Bread and their pay it back and pay it forward concept. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, you know, they have a series of restaurants um, that are their nonprofit operations that they don't have set prices on anything on the regular menu and people can just come in and pay what they can and maybe somebody you know can only afford a couple cents and another person overpays and it's all about you know not I I really admired the CEO here because he he did take a stand about corporate America and kind of greed um and he sees the real value not about making money and rising stock prices but Uh, in being a good corporate citizen with, you know, profit as hopefully a happy byproduct. But, you know, that, that rollout, um, was, was very well executed and did take a stance on some, some issues that, you know, closely align to what their business does when it comes to, you know, hunger and whatnot, but also just in terms of poverty and opening these nonprofit restaurants in really low, um, income areas. That was, that I think is one campaign that can be applauded. That's so that leads me to, to ask another question about I mean, does it necessarily have to be an original idea or can it be the way that idea is delivered? I mean, to the point about about Panera Bread, I mean, I, I'm guessing Panera Bread isn't the only or, or necessarily even the first company to maybe experiment with something like that, but they did have the best rollout and they uh-huh. were maybe the largest company to do that. Or, or, or even just going back to the Starbucks example, I mean, it's not that you know, talking about race in and of itself was the original idea, but I think what, what, what was botched there was, was the rollout and that was sort of the missed opportunity. So I wonder how much of it actually has to be an original idea or how much is it actually the way that that idea is delivered? Yeah, that's, that's a really good point because, you know, I know it's also hotly debated that is there such a thing as a completely original idea? I mean, that's an interesting debate in and of itself, (laughs) but, um, you know, I think you're absolutely right because part of thought leadership is about establishing the credibility and the following. So somebody may have um, a completely new way to do something, um, but without the credibility or the backing, you know, does that fit with our definition of thought leadership? So for instance, actually, um, you know, digital books, that was something that's been, you know, individuals have, have toyed with and, and it's debated, you know, who first really invented that concept. But then, you know, Kindle had the backing and the credibility and the platform to establish dominance of the e-reader, um, you know, and Amazon quickly to follow and all that. Um, so I think the rollout is really important because that's what's going to gain the following for, um, as Shell Israel put it, you know, that disruption, because that's what we're looking for. We're not just looking for the idea. We're looking for the disruption in the following uh, that ensue after the fact. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that makes me think of sort of the, the, the tools kind of at people's disposal now to become thought leaders. I mean, now that, you know, everybody can be a publisher, essentially. <laughs> um, how has that changed the dynamics and sort of, you know, so, both grooming and sort of, you know, establishing kind of a, a following as, as a thought leader? Yeah, that, that's a great point, because we certainly have seen that kind of democratization of those publishing platforms. Um especially with social media and, and other multimedia outlets like YouTube and everything from Medium and whatnot. Um, it's, it's interesting because you're right. Everybody can be published nowadays, but um, 
you know, that's almost a detriment to thought leadership because it's just so pervasive that it's really hard to cut um, and rise above the noise. Um, I think I read recently um, that, you know, the average person consumes upward of 11 hours of media a day um, these these days, Mm -hmm. which is just, you know, more than the average work day, which is just crazy um, in some regards. But it's also, you know, taking all of that in, you know, what's going to retain and uh, what's going to really stick. And I think it, it comes hand in hand with the fact that thought leadership is a job. You know, it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort to be pervasive on multiple platforms um, to really rise above, especially if you're trying to create this without an existing following already, like some of the, you know, great innovators we've already mentioned. Um, so it does, it does take a lot of time and it takes, it takes some existing credibility to really have that following because otherwise you'll just be totally lost in the, um, multitude of platforms mm-hmm. these days. Uh, I think I was also reading that what a, t- a tweet on Twitter has a lifespan now of less than eight seconds, um, just because of the sheer volume. So, you know, if you're not capturing the right audience within that eight second window, you know, you might as well not be tweeting at all. <laughs> right. It's very, very interesting. And it's a very diverse and, um, market these days that, you know, so I think that all comes back to establishing your pre-existing credibility to build your thought leadership platform on, um, and using those followers to take into your new, you know, better practice. Right. And although with Twitter, for instance, right. I mean, if, if it is a really, if it's a good tweet that, that resonates with people, it, it'll probably be shared, um, multiple uh-huh. times. So, so it, it, that kind of, I would think it considerably expands that eight second window. And, um, and as we've seen, you know, even when people post things on Twitter, they shouldn't, and they later delete thanks to the, the, uh, beauty of screenshots these days. Um, <laughs> they, they, you know, tweets seem to live on. Um, I know even just in sort of in the, in, in the aftermath of the election, I mean, there was, I think there were so many tweets out there from people whose opinion I admired that I found myself having to, um, you know, I mean, I, I found myself having to look back or like, or just rely on people retweeting to know kind of what, what were the things that I should really be, be paying attention to. So I would think uh-huh. that if, if your, if your tweets are, are powerful in, in making an impact that you can considerably extend that window. Oh yeah. And that's a great point. And that again, goes back to just having that credibility because without that at the forefront, you know, your tweet will be lost. But now if you've got people following you and retweeting you and, and sharing or looking for what you're going to say next, because they are so captivated by your presence, you know, that's absolutely going to extend that window, but, um, and diminish the need for such a time and intensive campaigns across all the platforms to kind of reach that touch point. Um, so yeah, that definitely goes back to the, the initial credibility point. And so, just the, the the let's talk about the term thought leader in and of itself, because when I when 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 that's brought up, oftentimes um, in conversations that I have with people, it's sort of brought up with an eye roll a little bit, like oh gosh, you know, it's, just, it, it's an overused term, right? To the point that, like, I mean, anybody with a blog sometimes will call themselves a thought leader, and and so I wonder, sort of, I guess this is two questions. I mean, a, I mean, do you think that the term itself is has been overused to the point that it doesn't have the impact that it should and and secondly is 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 it a term that anybody should really be calling themselves or is it a term that that should be earned that you know it's one of those you don't get to decide if you're a thought leader um your the community essentially does or your followers do yeah a great couple questions there and for 
first off, just in terms of the, the term itself, you're right. It is it is very overused these days, and I think it, it does still capture the essence of, of the goal and of what you're trying to do by you know creating those better practices and original ideas. Um, so the term itself actually defines what it is. Um, however, I do think that it's it is overused, and you're right. I see the eye rolls all the time. Um, you know, I think as an industry, especially in, in PR, uh, we'll likely see that term replaced in the next few years, um, and then a few years down the road replaced again. Um, you know, we see that time and time again, and I think this is going to be one of those instances as well. Um, and I think you're right, though, that people cannot call, um, claim themselves to be thought leaders. I think it definitely depends on the following and um, whether they've had success in, in their career uh, generating new ways to do things. Um, so I think it is something that is earned, um, but it is something that you can help cultivate for sure. Um, and you can you can certainly help generate that following and, and generate the platforms that will help disperse your ideas. Um, so it can be cultivated, but I think it, it does have to be awarded. So I guess that would kind of feed into my, my next question. I mean, if, if say you're, you're advising, um, a client who would like to do a thought leadership program, but they just, they don't have the original thinking. They don't have the right people within their organization to, to, to really effectively execute on a thought leadership campaign. Is there an alternative? I mean, could you, I mean, do you have to, um, I mean, do you have to humor the idea or, or can you, or can you redirect sort of their, their intention of sort of having a voice um, in a way that, that doesn't necessarily would put them in the category of being a thought leader, but would still allow them to have a voice in, in the community that, and the audience that they want to speak to. Yeah, we've, we've come across that um, often with clients that just, you know, don't necessarily have that strong internal champion to move um, predictive ideas forward. Um, I think in some instances we, we have worked around that by um, actually in even more credible ways by finding champions at our clients' customers. So, you know, especially if they, um, you know, we want them to talk about our client in a way that is provocative and, and can provide that kind of case study and example for why other people should follow suit. So that's been um, an effective way when we don't have a thought leader within a client uh, that we can really champion. Um, otherwise, you know, working around that um, is through content. Um, content can be a want to be thought leader company's best friend. Mm -hmm. um, you have the control over the message, so you can really ensure that you're articulating uh, your ideas in the way that you want to be, and you can also now have increasingly more control over where those ideas are shared, who sees them, and how, you know, the frequency, the cadence at which you're disseminating those those ideas and, and content. So, um, and that can have multiple authors, you know, and really generate this collaborative environment that backs a company-led thought leadership platform over an individual. And so, I think those are the two ways that we've we've predominantly gotten around around the issue of a client not having a, a singular thought leadership champion, either through customers or through content. And that concludes another episode of the Echo Chamber. I'd like to thank our guests from Globality and March Communications. I would also like to thank our production team at Marketers for 4DC, and um, we'll be back soon with another episode.
You've been listening to The Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers.